The topics and opinions expressed on the following show are solely those of the host and their guests, and not those of W4CS Radio, its employees, or affiliates. W4CS makes no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Support Network on W4CS.com. Any health-related information on the following show provides general information only. Content presented on any show by any host or guest should not be substituted for a doctor's advice. Always consult your physician before beginning any new diet, exercise, or treatment program. Welcome to 5 to Thrive Live. I am Carolyn Gazella, your host tonight. My co-host, Dr. Lise Ulschuler, has the night off. She's actually on vacation this week. Good for her. I have a wonderful guest and a very important topic. But before we get started, I also have a few announcements. So first of all, if you've ever missed any of our shows, don't worry, because you can find all of our past shows on iHeartRadio. Just go to iHeart.com, type in 5 to Thrive Live, and you'll find us there. We also feature our past shows on our website at iThrivePlan.com. That's iThrivePlan.com. And before we begin... We'd also like to thank the sponsors of our show, who are Cetria Glutathione, Cognizant Citicoline, and of course, the iThrive Plan. We appreciate our sponsors very much, so please be sure to check out their websites and listen closely to those commercials. So tonight, we're going to be talking about colon cancer prevention, but I have to tell you that the advice you will hear tonight will help you reduce the risk of many cancers, not just colon cancer, but we will be focusing pretty specifically on colon. Uh, we have a lot to cover, so I'm just going to get right to it. My guest is Dr. Tina Kayser, who is not only a very talented doctor, but she is also an incredible writer and editor. In fact, Dr. Kayser is the editor-in-chief of the Natural Medicine Journal, which is the journal that I publish, so it's been my absolute pleasure to be working with her for, gosh, nearly 10 years now. Dr. Kayser received her naturopathic doctorate from National University of Natural Medicine, and she did her residency with Cancer Treatment Centers of America. She is also a fellow of the American Board of Naturopathic Oncology, which is the highest standard in the naturopathic oncology profession. She has a private practice in Portland, Oregon, and we are thankful that she is somewhat of a regular guest here on 5 to Thrive Live. Dr. Kayser, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Carolyn. Well, as I mentioned, we do have a lot to cover, and you are, are quite an expert on this topic, so we're really pleased to have you with us. So let's begin with just talking about how prevalent colon cancer is. Yeah, so colon cancer is extremely prevalent. Um, the good news is the, the incidence is going down, but it, it accounts for about 8% of all new cancer diagnoses, um, and it is the second leading cause of cancer deaths um, in men or in women. It's second only to lung cancer. 
Um, and it begs the question, what's third? It's breast cancer and prostate cancer after that. So um, it's it's very prevalent. It's very common. There, see, there is estimated over 1 million survivors of colorectal cancer today in the United States. So it's prevalent both in the in the incidence as well as the prevalence of survivorship out the po- survivorship population out there. Right. So, you know, with all cancers, I'm just always curious about how much power we actually have when it comes to reducing risk. So with colon cancer in particular, can we really make an impact when it comes to prevention? Yeah, I think the key with colorectal cancer and prevention is to remember that the cancer arises at the lining of the colon. And we do have some control as to what is going on in the lining of the colon, both through diet and through our habits as exercise and sleep and such. It's estimated that about half of colorectal cancer is considered preventable. And so much of colorectal cancer is due to um, lifestyle um, habits that we have. That's not to say we can always explain it and we can always prevent it, but we can certainly reduce our risk of colorectal cancer by instituting some very general healthy guidelines. Great. Well, that's good to know. So half of uh, the cancers are are preventable. And as you mentioned, we're talking about reducing risk. There are no guarantees, but this is what is going to uh, help us reduce our risk. So let's begin by talking about key risk factors. So what are those key risk factors when it comes to colon cancer? Yeah, some of the key risk factors for colorectal cancer, I like to divide this out into what is non-modifiable, so we can't change those, and which ones are modifiable, meaning we have some control on some level. So the non-modifiable risk factors would be aging. Aging itself is a risk factor. The highest rate of death from colorectal cancer is actually in the early 70s. The average age of death from colorectal cancer is about 73 years old. So this is interesting, and when we talk about colonoscopies, I'll tell you why that's interesting. That's about the time we stopped doing them. Um, so the the other is that's non-modifiable is some of your genetics. So if you're if you have a genetic predisposition towards colorectal cancer, that could be a familial predisposition, a long family history of such cancers, or an actual gene that's been identified like that for Lynch syndrome, for example. That can't really be modified. But what can be modified is your body composition. So how much fat you are carrying, both on top of your muscle as well as underneath the muscle. That underneath the muscle stuff called visceral fat can be particularly harmful. How active you are physically. Being sedentary is now a separate, uh, independent risk factor for colorectal cancer. So it doesn't matter how fit you are or how thin you are. If you're sitting um, for long stretches in the daytime, you are raising your risk for colorectal cancer. Um, Diabetes is a risk factor, so those with diabetes controlling blood sugars as best you can, making a concerted effort is very helpful. Smoking, both former smokers as well as current smokers, um, that can be modified, of course, if one is still smoking. And high alcohol consumption, which is put at one drink per day for women and two drinks for men. And a drink is either a shot of, of a hard alcohol, four ounces of wine, or 12 ounces of what would be a Budweiser type beer, not 12 ounces of a of a, what do you call those, microbrews, so those, those are a little stronger. Um, dietarily, risk factors include, and I think that these are pretty commonly known, charred meats and processed meats. So all the ones with, uh, like the, the uh, salamis and pepperonis and uh, nitrites from hot dogs and bologna, those kind of things are, are really raise one's risk for colorectal cancer, as does a low-fiber diet. So one must eat their vegetables in order to feed the good bacteria in the gut, and those good bacteria... They end up making metabolites or byproducts of their own life cycle that protect the colon can the colon from developing colon cancer. Wow, and that's that's a lot of great stuff that we can actually do 
um, to help reduce our risk. So that's great. And and you know what? We are going to take our first break. When we come back, I do want to talk about colonoscopies because you've mentioned them, and I think that that is an important perspective. So we're going to take our first break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Tina Kayser. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Attention all cancer survivors, are you ready to thrive? Hello, I'm Dr. Lee Schuler, And I'm Carolyn Gazella, and we are the creators of the new iThrive Cancer Survivor Online Wellness Plan. iThrive creates an individualized wellness plan specifically based on your health needs. We focus on five key areas to improve your health. Diet, movement, environment, rejuvenation, and spirit. After completing a short survey, an individualized iThrive plan will be created just for you. Your plan will contain recommended, interactive, interesting, and innovative action steps in these five key areas of lifestyle. The iThrive plan will help you to recover from cancer treatment, reduce your risk of recurrence, and to achieve optimal wellness. In other words, it will help you thrive. For more information about the iThrive plan, visit www.iThrivePlan.com. Plan.com. That's iThrivePlan.com. Check it out today and receive a special time-limited offer. Visit www.iThrivePlan.com today. It's time to thrive, everyone. We are constantly being bombarded by toxins in the air we breathe, water we drink, and even the foods we eat. So what's the answer? Glutathione. It's inside every cell in your body and protects you from the damage of oxidative stress and toxins. There's a special patented form of glutathione that is superior called Cetria. Cetria is pure, vegetarian, and allergen-free. Help replenish your body's reserves of this very important nutrient, detoxified in a natural way. Visit cetriaglutathione.com that's setriaglutathione.com. Welcome back to Five to Thrive Live. I'm your host, Carolyn Gazella, and I'm here with naturopathic oncologist, Dr. Tina Kayser. We are talking about reducing the risk of colon cancer. Dr. Kayser has, uh, you know, educated healthcare professionals and talked to patients about this and um, has done a lot of uh, writing and presentations on this topic. So she is the perfect one to talk to us today. Now, Dr. Kayser, before we talk specifically about diet and lifestyle and some of those modifiable things that we can do to reduce our risk, talk to us about colonoscopies. How important are they? Who should get them and when? Yeah, so colonoscopies are one of those things I ask all my patients if they've had and they should start at the age of 50. The reason right now there is a little controversy, just a few days ago, just this week, the American Cancer Society came out with a recommendation that be moved down to 45 years old. 
Um, and that's because the incidence of colorectal cancer in people under the age of 50 is going up, while the incidence of colorectal cancer in those over the age of 50 has been going down steadily. Um, so the, the increase in colorectal cancer in those under 50 years old has gone up by 50% uh, since 19, the mid-1990s. Wow. And while it's gone down dramatically in those over 50, and the reason it's gone down is because colonoscopies are not just a little look-see in your colon. They are more akin to a pap smear in that you look at that and then they take the polyp, they take the precancerous lesion, they remove the precancerous lesions, thus removing a risk of developing colorectal cancer within the next, say, three to five years. Um, so this is an intervention. So I think the big mistake out there, and the reason 30 to 40% of people over the age of 50 have not gotten colonoscopies, and de depending on the state, it's somewhere in that range, um, I think it's because they misunderstand what's going on. The, col the colonoscopy is very different than a mammogram. It's very different than a PSA in that is an active intervention to lower the risk. And this is why the incidence of colorectal cancer has gone down. This is the very reason. It's because of colonoscopies. They do save lives. Yeah, that's a that's a very good take-home message. If you are 50 or older and have not had a colonoscopy, please talk to your doctor because this is a life-saving uh, intervention. Um, so good to know. So now let's talk about some other ways to practice proactive prevention. I'd like to begin with exercise because you mentioned, um, you know, being sedentary and how that is, in fact, uh, a risk factor. So, so how important is physical activity and what are your specific recommendations when it comes to exercise for your patients? Yeah, the statistically the risk of colorectal cancer is lowered somewhere between 25 and 50 percent with exercise. Um, I think that's, that's a, statistically it's a huge amount. I mean, if you can lower your risk by 50 percent, it's just there, there becomes a why not factor. Um, I recommend that people get both aerobic and resistive exercise. So aerobic exercise is that when you are a little more breathless, your heart rate goes up, right? You're, you're huffing a little bit. It doesn't have to be, you know, falling over with that much vigorous exercise, but you do need to be breathing heavily and getting your heart rate into um, an aerobic zone. Um, the resistive exercise builds muscle. And the more we learn, the more we learn there's a balance in the body between molecules made by the muscle and molecules made by your fat. They both, both of them, whether you're fat or muscle, they make certain chemical compounds that then affect your entire body's physiology. In short, it, it can determine whether there's inflammation in the background, which we know chronic inflammation is bad for cancer risk and cardiovascular risk, or whether there's less inflammation. So the more muscle you have, the less inflammatory state you're going to be in. The, when you have low muscle, high fat, you're going to be more inflamed systemically, increasing your risk for colorectal and all sorts of other cancers as well. Now, uh, specific to obesity, is the inflammation connection um, the, the main pathway there, or are there other things going on that causes obesity to increase our risk of, of colorectal cancer? You know, inflammation is just one of many things. The with obesity, that the fat itself is an active uh, organ of sorts, making molecules that um, also increase uh, growth factors, like insulin-like growth factor. So, growth factors, as the name implies, are not good if you're trying to prevent cancer. It can cause the growth of the tumors. It can also cause more oxidative stress in the body. And oxidative stress is what can give rise to damaging the DNA itself. 
And so obesity has a few different mechanisms. It's all due to these molecules that are made by the fat tissue itself. So it's all about balancing it. And one thing I say to people, because, you know, I see patients and sometimes when people are over the, a certain age, it gets harder and harder to lose the fat. Well, another option is because we're talking about balance is to build the muscle under your fat so that at least you're getting opposing molecules. And so for those who really have tried everything in the kitchen sink, I mean, of course, and the naturopath, we would look at thyroid and adrenal support and all of that as well. But that said, if you build muscle, while the scale may go up a couple pounds because you're putting on muscle mass, you may be improving your physiology in total. So um, we know that we need to um, uh, reduce our obesity. We need to have a, a healthy, normal body weight. Um, and we do that through exercise and we also can build muscle. Are there other things, like for example, I read a study the other day saying that um, if someone doesn't get enough sleep, they they immediately put their body, not immediately, but after, I, f I forget what it was, if you don't get six hours for three nights in a row or something like that, you are immediately put into an insulin resistant state and you have a propensity to gain weight. And that's just because you're not sleeping well. Um, so um, what, what else can we do? And, and what is that sleep connection when it comes to obesity? Yeah, the sleep connection is, is, is a strong one when it comes to putting weight on. And it has to do with a circadian rhythm that we're supposed to have, a normal circadian rhythm, right? You, in an ideal world, you sleep well and you sleep solid and get rest restoration for seven to eight hours at night. And then you wake well rested and have plenty of energy during the daytime. I will tell you that not many people live that life, <laughs> but you know, in in when we have disrupted sleep, we are essentially changing the physiology of the body. So the the cortisol, for example, can go up in the night, and if cortisol goes up, then you're going to have a propensity to put more weight on, especially in the middle uh, that that visceral fat I had mentioned. Um, so that will increase the risk of colorectal cancer and other and other. Uh, inflammatory conditions as well. Um, and there's also other imbalances. There can be thyroid hormone imbalances as we age, especially. There can be um, testosterone takes plays a role. Estrogen plays a role. There's a lot more going on. I would actually tell people who are having a really hard time um, losing weight to talk to someone who can look at their physiology in more detail. Um, you know, the more we know, the more we realize that what inhabits the colon as far as the bacteria and the funguses and the viruses that actually inhabit the gut have a lot to do with how you process the food and how your calories are um, derived. So some folks out there will say, well, I eat like a thousand calories a day and I still don't lose weight. Um, there probably is a microbial component to that where the microbiota is playing some role in how they are um, deriving calories from their food there's yeah, a, a lot to look at yeah and especially that whole gut uh connection is just huge right now with um all all types of cancers not just colon cancer so that's that's an interesting take on that now um let's talk a little bit about diet now when you were talking about modifiable risk factors you mentioned a few things that we should not do you know we should not eat processed meats we should not really uh char our, um, you know, meats, uh, when we're grilling, are there other dietary things that we should not do? Those are the biggest. And I would say, um, sugary foods would be included in there. Mm -hmm. uh, any, any chemical compounds, you know, we, 
don't t- really talk about this much, but when we ingest something like pesticides, you know, those were designed to kill organisms. And some of them are nerve toxicants. Some of them go after the mitochondria of the insect. Um, but, you know, we when we ingest those, there's still toxic compounds that may be affecting our flora in ways we just haven't even defined yet. So I would say toxicants of all kinds should be avoided. Um, and I should say one more note about charred meats, because I think I failed to, to mention it in the be- beginning. When charred meats are, are, are eaten, they, some of the effect can be modified two ways. One, cooking things slow and low so that you're not charring the food so much as cooking it without um, charring it. So it's actual charring that, that has the, the carcinogenic effect. And you can use other natural whole foods to lessen the carcinogenic effect of the charring. So you can put rosemary or cherries, or onions, lemon, all of these things will lessen the effect to some extent. And you can couple it with um, cruciferous vegetables. And cruciferous vegetables are things like broccoli and cauliflower and cabbage. So coleslaw is a classic if you're at a picnic and eating such foods. Um, so if you feel compelled, you're at a cookout and you don't want to be rude, you're going to eat your burger that you're given. Do uh, maybe do some extra helping of some crucifers to offset that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I would like to talk a little bit about what we should be emphasizing. And when you're talking about this this toxin load, um, I'm assuming whenever possible, people should um, should uh, eat organic uh, foods when possible, especially for the the um, you know, the, the dirty 15 clean or clean 15 and dirty dozen that, uh, is put out by the environmental working group. Um, so, so what's your take on organic and, uh, you know, other than cruciferous vegetables, are there other things that we should in fact do with diet? Yeah. The other thing that could be added to the diet that should be added to the diet is lots of fiber. And, you know, the the recommendation for fiber is about 30 grams per day. I actually put it a little higher than that. I don't think it's difficult if you're eating a whole foods diet to get between 35 and 50 grams, 55 grams a day. And that includes all fibrous foods. So that could be berries, it could be beans, it could be, you know, fruit off a tree, apples and such. Um, Legumes in particular, because of what is called resistant starch that's found in there, and root vegetables like um, potatoes and sweet potatoes, all of those things can have uh, an effect on the microbiota itself, and they act as prebiotics. And we have, like I said, we have a lot of um, say in what happens in our colon. And if we take care of it um, by feeding the colon um, prebiotics, we can actually optimize the the bacteria there. So I actually, I kind of, I know this is a little geeky, but I think of the colon like an incubator, you know, like you're incubating bacteria. That's your job. Your job is to tend them like you tend a garden. And so you can make sure that you're, oh, whatever you put in your mouth, you're not just feeding yourself. You have to start thinking, I'm not just feeding me, I'm feeding them. And so what do you want to give them? How do you keep them healthy? You know, I can tell you how to, how you could, if you ate lots of sugar, you're going to have an overgrowth of, uh, overgrowth of certain yeast, for example. That's no different than a garden. You just, you wouldn't throw a bunch of sugar on your, on your lettuce or something or salt on your tomatoes in the garden. You'll, you'll kill it. So you have to be careful about what you're feeding your gut bacteria. You want to feed the favorable gut bacteria and keep them healthy because their byproducts their byproducts of their life cycle are the very thing that protects us from colon cancer. 
Right. Uh, that's that's so important. And um, now when it comes to fiber, do you ever recommend uh, supplementing with fiber? On occasion, I do. I tend to want people to get it from whole foods and from organic foods. Um, and I do that because I feel like that helps people reach the bar I'm trying to set for them in getting a broad spectrum of colorful fruits, vegetables, and legumes. So I I think it can be done with whole foods, especially if people are conscientious about that. There was an interesting article in the New York Times a couple of years ago, and they showed a picture of what 2,000 calories looks like. And they showed a conventional American diet, and they showed fast food, um, and they showed a whole food plant-based diet. The volume of food one has to eat in a good whole foods diet is just more food than people are used to. And the average American is eating fairly concentrated food. So we're used to putting, I don't know, gravy on a biscuit, for example. It doesn't take up much space, but calorically, it's a lot of, it's a lot of calories in a very small space. In order to have a bowl of soup or salad that is the equivalent, it would be much larger. And I, I'm saying this because I have had this happen over time where people are like, oh, you know, I'm, either they say they're hungry or they're not, or they're losing weight and they don't want to. And I, and I have to remind them that in order to get the calories you would get from a nutrient-dense, uh, not nutrient-dense, calorie-dense average American uh, meal, you have to up the volume of food. So I, I, I think you could do the whole food through Whole Foods. That's my personal recommendation. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it does make a lot of sense that, um, you know, if you're not eating a, a lot of fruits and vegetables and high fiber foods, that a, a fiber supplement might might be the, the route to go because it is such an important aspect of uh, reducing risk of colon cancer. So that makes a lot of sense. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it is time for our final break. But when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Tina Kayser. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Attention all cancer survivors, are you ready to thrive? Hello, I'm Dr. Lee Sauschuler. And I'm Carolyn Gazella, and we are the creators of the new iThrive Cancer Survivor Online Wellness Plan. iThrive creates an individualized wellness plan specifically based on your health needs. We focus on five key areas to improve your health. Diet, movement, environment, rejuvenation, and spirit. After completing a short survey, an individualized iThrive plan will be created just for you. Your plan will contain recommended, interactive, interesting, and innovative action steps in these five key areas of lifestyle. The iThrive plan will help you to recover from cancer treatment, reduce your risk of recurrence, and to achieve optimal wellness. In other words, it will help you thrive. For more information about the iThrive plan, visit www.ithriveplan.com. That's ithriveplan.com. Check it out today and receive a special time-limited offer. Visit www.ithriveplan.com today. It's time to thrive, everyone. Are you interested in boosting your brain power? So am I. This is Carolyn Gazella, co-host of 5 to Thrive Live, and I'm here to tell you about a supplement that I take. The human brain needs a lot of nutrition to stay focused throughout the day. Citicoline naturally enhances energy-producing centers within the brain. 
Cognizant delivers a clinically tested, patented form of citicoline that supplies your brain with the energy it needs to stay sharp. Look for Cognizant on the label, or for more information, visit Cognizant.com. That's Cognizant.com. Five to Thrive Live. I am Carolyn Gazella. I'm here with my good friend and uh, publishing person, Dr. Tina Kayser. Tina, can you believe that it's almost 10 years that we've been working together? No, time flies when you're having fun, Carolyn. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it, it really does. Um, so, yeah, I, I want to um, stay on this concept of what's going on in our gut. Uh, because obviously I think that when we think of colon cancer, you know, that's where our attention goes to that gut and the colon and everything that's going on in there. And I want to ask you about probiotics. I mean, I'm, you know, probiotics have become a household name because of, you know, the yogurt commercials and everything else. Um, and I am of the opinion personally that we should emphasize a probiotic even more so than taking a multi. And you, and you, you may disagree with that, but I, I feel that uh, probiotic supplementation is is really an important thing. So I want to know your opinion about probiotics, and then I want you to connect the dots uh, between probiotics and potential for risk reduction with colon cancer. Okay. So, yeah, I agree. I think of probiotics as seeds, right? And so if I continue with that garden analogy, you must seed the garden at, at, at times. It takes some tending of some kind. And so the probiotics, the key to the probiotics, to good probiotics and a good healthy gut flora, uh, floras are short term for all the bacteria that are, that are inhabiting it. Diversity is the word. And it, it, I can't help but think of ecosystems. You know, the healthiest ecosystems in the world are those with the most diversity. That is our goal. We want a really diverse flora. And so it doesn't, it, it's been without exception. It shows in, in cancer outcomes, the more diverse the gut is. And this is not just colorectal cancer, all sorts of cancers, the better the overall survival for people. And so diversity, diversity, diversity. I say that because that means in order to have diversity, you need a broad spectrum of nutrients going in. You need a, the broadest spectrum of probiotics you can get. And you want to change it up. I mean, I think that it's important to take something with, you know, 8, 12, 15 different strains of acidophilus and bifidus. And each one of those has multiple strains under it. And so there's, there are so, there's thousands of types of bacteria in the gut. We are not going to see the gut with, with all of the different species. But what taking the probiotic does is it creates a favorable environment for the species that are supposed to be there. So as we eat our foods, as we eat berries and apples and other foods that have a little bit of bacteria on them, the good guys get to stay because the lactobacillus has come through and created the lactic acid that's necessary for them, for example. So I think it's really important. I also am a fan of those who can go out in nature and Either you have your own garden, which is organic, and you know how it was treated. There's no chemicals, and you can pick things right off the vine and eat them. I'm a huge fan of that. Or if you're out and about and you're walking trails, whether it's in Colorado or the northwest where I am, 
And you can pick salmon berries or huckleberries or blueberries that are growing in the wild. Elderberries grow wild in the mountains. I think it's really important. I think it's a missing link in our current culture. We don't just pick and eat things. I mean, a lot of us grew up with gardens and you would pick the peas off the vine or the, you know, the pea pods and you just eat them or the tomatoes and you just bit it like an apple. I mean, that has gone by the wayside. And I think that that is largely how traditionally we got our organisms in our gut. I think we actually got them from nature. That said, we don't we don't have the guts now that we had, that our ancestors had. We probably most of us have had antibiotics, or we've had surgery, or you know, there's all sorts of things we've done to kind of uh, change the environment in the gut. So we don't have the pristine environment. Um, so I think that it's important that, to take probiotics to basically amend the soil, so to speak. Um, I guess it would be this, the equivalent of throwing some red clover down and getting some nitrogen into, into poor soil um, and so that the, what's supposed to come up can come up. Yeah, I really like that garden analogy. And I love the reminder about pick, picking your own berries. I was just, I just got back from a trip uh, uh, from a trip to Wisconsin, and there were signs all over in the countryside, pick your own strawberries. And uh, <laughs> last year when I went to Michigan, I did, I did the pick your own blueberries. And I'll tell you, they just, it brought me back to my childhood when we would go into the woods and, you know, with my grandmother, we would find mushrooms and blackberries. And, you know, I mean, that that's really how I grew up so it's it's such a great reminder when you see those signs stop and pick your own strawberries <laughs> <laughs> so let's um let's talk a little bit about uh vitamins herbs um and dietary supplements now before i uh um ask about specific uh supplements do you have an overarching philosophy about dietary supplements uh, and, and recommending supplements to your patients? Um, I know it's really individualized, but um, is there a philosophy that you apply uh, to supplement use in your practice? Um, I think there, <laughs> yes is the answer. I guess the short answer. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think the overarching idea for me is to always remember that supplements are supplemental to the foundation of diet and lifestyle. And so it's quite literal when you supplement something. You should be supplementing good habits and good diet and, you know, good sleep and all of that. I mean, you really have to hit the foundation first. And supplements are just kind of icing on the cake. Um, I prioritize supplements that have evidenced effects. So if there's outcome data showing me, for example, there is in colorectal cancer evidence showing that vitamin D levels when they're made, uh, when they're normalized, will protect one from developing colorectal cancer. It's actually, vitamin D in cancer is, is very commonly talked about now, but I don't know if many people know, it was back in 1980 that Garland and Garland came out with the very first study showing that sunshine and colorectal cancer mortality were associated. So in sunny climates, people seem to live longer. And then they said, well, maybe this is because of vitamin D. And then off we went since 1980. We've been studying it in that sense. Um, so I would say things that we cannot obtain normal levels of with diet. So I prioritize something like vitamin D because as much sunshine as people get, it seems like very often people are deficient. Um, and so because it's hard to accumulate that from the sun or from small amounts here and there in the diet, um, it's, it's a high priority item. And that's the same for something like fish oil, which has omega-3 fatty acids, which are by definition essential. They're essential fatty acids because you and I cannot make them. Our bodies cannot produce them. So because they're essential fatty acids, and I'm assuming most people don't eat enough sardines, herring, 
mackerel, um, salmon that's not been fully cooked. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's not easy to come by them. I know there's small amounts also in greens, in flax seeds, in some other places, but it's one of those things that dietarily is not simple to make sure that we're, we have enough of or that we're replete in. So I would put vitamin D fish oil at very high on the top of my list. Um, and that's how I prioritize it. First, I'm like, how can, can you get what we're talking about in your diet? If, if the answer is no, and there's good evidence to show that, that that nutrient can be protective, then I'll say, okay, let's supplement it to make sure because the evidence shows that it's, it's essential for you to take it. Yeah, and I think those are two really great examples. I, I look at fish oil, too, as like one of those foundational supplements that, you know, nearly everyone uh, should be should be taking. It, it's just so uh, beneficial for our health. So let's talk specifically about reducing risk of colon cancer. And I have to tell you, um, there are many vitamins, herbs, and nutrients that can help in this area, and we don't have time to talk about them all, but I'm going to ask you to pick your favorites of, uh, these are vitamins, herbs, or nutrients that are specific to reducing risk of colon cancer. Tell us what your faves are and tell us why they're your faves. Okay, let's see. So I mentioned two of them already. Vitamin D has to be top of the list because the evidence is so strong, and it doesn't mean that more is better. It just means that deficiency certainly increases one's risk, both of the initial diagnosis and I think of recurrence as well. Um, and fish oil is high on there too because of its effects and we know that the colon cells do take up fish oil, that's been evidence. So um, after that, I would say, um, you know, this is unusual, but in people who are prone to colorectal cancer, I might actually put calcium on this list. And it's not because, um, I know calcium is controversial these days, but it doesn't it's because there's decent evidence that calcium protects from colorectal cancer. And the way it works is that there are certain bile acids that when they make it all the way down to the colon can be become carcinogenic to the colon lining. When calcium is taken, calcium binds those bile acids. And by taking calcium and binding the bile acids, you render them inert. They're not going to become carcinogenic when they go down further in the colon. So the evidence is pretty high for that. Um, so I would put that because the evidence is, is considerable, I would put that high on the to-do list. But also you can get calcium with a vitamin D in it. So it becomes one supplement. <laughs> yeah. And I, I have to, I have to say that that surprises me. I did not know that about calcium. Um, and you're right. Calcium supplementation can be somewhat controversial, but you're not talking about like high dose calcium. You're just, just talking about, a, you know, a basic amount of calcium, you know? Um, yes. And ironically, here's the thing. I'm actually talking, if this is what one would be taking it for, I would actually ask the person to take a fairly not so well absorbed calcium supplement because the purpose is to stay in the colon. And so if you don't want to absorb it and you want it to carry on into the colon, you get calcium carbonate. Calcium carbonate is the least absorbable of all the calciums that can be gotten in a supplement as far as I know. So it's it's kind of strange because I would be purposely giving them calcium that doesn't go into the bloodstream very well anyways. Wow, that is, that's fascinating to me. Okay, what's next on your list? Um, I would put spices on my list. And so by that, I mean like turmeric, um, if we're giving it as a supplement. And we're talking about supplements specifically here, Carolyn? Yes, yep. Okay, yep. so I would put turmeric or curcumin, curcumin being the, the uh, active compound in the turmeric. 
plant. I put that high on the list right next to green tea. So green tea and curcumin would be right next to each other. And again, I have to say it's because the evidence pushes us in that direction. The, the rate of colorectal cancer in India, for example, is very low um, compared to Western uh, countries. So I would put that, and that could be because of the turmeric and the curcumin. It could be also because they use so many other spices in their cooking. And cooking, everyone knows that there's there's a lot more spices that have good protective effect than just turmeric. Um, so those would be high in my list. But probiotics, which we already talked about, are very high in my list. Um, you know, I would probably have someone take a multivitamin that's not a mega dose. So by that, I mean adequate levels to make sure there's no depletion or deficiency in certain things like selenium. Selenium is really important, and there's a lot of soil in the United States that's selenium deficient. So unless you're really a master gardener and you're checking the nutrients in your garden, you know, like here in the Northwest, um, selenium has to be um, given, I mean, if you just ate from your backyard here, you would not get enough selenium. It's selenium deficient soil throughout the, throughout my area. Um so that's that's high in the list in a, a low dose vitamin, meaning I don't want to see like fifty thousand um, percent of the daily recommended amount. Just just enough to make sure that there's no deficiency because that's the problem. Um, that, those are the biggies as far as supplements. I'm trying to think. I said probiotics already. You know, I have a question. You know, mm -hmm. with a lot of uh, with a lot of cancers, there's there's almost a, a myth that cancer is an immune system disorder and mm -hmm. we we should be focusing so much on on our immune system and antioxidants and polyphenols and um and really bolstering the immune system um is that the case with colon or are you are you um kind of going down a different a different path you know i don't think of it as an immune glitch of course the immune system is involved because if it if it were functioning completely properly, this cancer would not be able to arise. It would be seen by the immune system. So there has to be some level of immune suppression in the area um, of the of the colorectal cancer cells themselves. So they, you know that you have to be able to block it. There's there's three outcomes to cancer, right? So there's this is a this is just a truism. How the immune system interacts with cancer cells. There's only three outcomes. It either recognizes it and eliminates it. Uh, so that's eradication or elimination. Or it doesn't see it, it escapes completely. And that's when we find the tumor. So it escapes the immune recognition and it grows and we find a tumor eventually. And then the third phase is equilibrium. And equilibrium is when, you know, the immune system sees it, but it can't quite get the upper hand to eradicate it. So the cancer is trying to grow, the immune system is trying to tamp it down, it's trying to grow, you know, it, they go back and forth in an equilibrium state. And that happens probably more often than than we talk about or that we even know about. Um, so I guess the question becomes how we haven't really looked at that side of colorectal cancer as closely as we have for so many other cancers because because what's happening in the lumen of the colon itself, like it's facing it's facing the business end of the colon. It's got foods and bacteria going by. So I, I wonder if it's partly because it's not within the tissues of the body. You know, it's not isolated. It's not the ovaries. It's not it's not the breast. Um so it's interesting that you say that because I don't think of immune suppression as a major reason for colorectal cancer. It's also not as intimately linked as, say, lymphoma is to immune suppressive um, states like uh, HIV positive people or things like that. It doesn't occur more in those people as far as I know.
Right. <clears throat> yeah, that's a good point. Now, one thing that um, all of these substances, not all, but most of these substances have in common, you know, the probiotics, the vi- vitamin D, the fish oil, the spices that you mentioned, turmeric and green tea, they're all, they all have anti-inflammatory properties. It seems like maybe uh, the inflammatory component and, and eating more of an anti-inflammatory diet and having more of an anti-inflammatory lifestyle would be kind of a good general rule of thumb when it comes to reducing risk. Is that a fair statement? I think that's a fair statement to make. You know, whether colorectal cancer arises in somebody who has a genetic predisposition or it arises what's called sporadically, which is kind of just randomly someone with no family history or genetic predisposition, um, it, it in the pathways, if you're looking at how it happens, along the way there is almost always a piece of that that is hyper inflammatory it's the cox2 enzyme and cox2 inhibitors like um, aspirin like salicoxib which is uh, celebrex they have been shown to have anti-cancer effects for colorectal cancer specifically and so because this kind of sequence of events from adenoma to colorectal cancer is so well laid out molecularly and along the way there's always an uh, over overexpression of that one enzyme that causes so much inflammation, then yeah, I think you can say that there's always an inflammatory component. Um, and on that note, I should, I should say that aspirin has been shown to be helpful in prevention of colorectal cancer mortality. So in these, and there's been some studies where they gave uh, low-dose aspirin in people, to people with cardiovascular risk, and, and they were 50-something years old, I believe, um, in the UK. And then they, they watched them over time. And 20 years later, the, those people who actually took aspirin rather than the placebo um, had a lot less colorectal cancer deaths. Mm-hmm. I always, that, that statistic has always fascinated me because they didn't continue on and take aspirin the rest of their lives. They just took it during a certain phase, during the study phase, um, and then they had a continued benefit for the rest of their lives. Yeah, that is fascinating. And is this just like a little baby aspirin? or Yeah, okay. yeah just a baby yeah. aspirin. There's no, there's no reason. Actually, they looked at the dose, whether it got better with higher dose, because some studies used a whole 325 milligrams. And in the UK, apparently 75 is their, is their low-end dose. Here in the United States, it's 81 milligrams for a baby aspirin. Mm-hmm. In any case, the baby aspirin worked just as well as the high dose, so there's no reason to use a high dose. Okay, great. Um, so uh, switching gears back to lifestyle, um, is there any is there any connection between stress and our ability to maybe if we were having difficulty managing our stress, um, is there a, a, a stress connection with increased risk of uh, colon cancer? You know, I've never looked at it as a stress component, but I will say I know that disrupted sleep is a factor. Um, and I know that sleep often suffers in, in those who are highly stressed or anxious. Um, and I think what's happening there is, um, you know, sleep deprivation. If you're not getting enough sleep, then inflammation goes up systemically. It does it in one night, by the way. They did this with healthy male volunteers, and they kept them up till 3 a.m. And uh, if, they, if they only got four hours of sleep, they would test their parameters for inflammation in the morning and just one night of lack of sleep increases inflammation. So I can't imagine, you know, I, I think it's amazing what we can do because I can, some people can pull off very little sleep for a very long time um, and still function. Um, with colorectal yeah. cancer, I have to tell you one little strange little 
side note, they have found that people who sleep extremely long amounts of time, like they're in bed for 9, 10, 11 hours, seem to have higher rates of colorectal cancer as well. Mm. But then they looked at the data more closely and they said it seemed to be those who were obese or snoring. And I just, I, I, I assume from a naturopathic perspective, they're not getting restorative sleep. So they're, they're actually waking themselves up with their snoring. Um, um, obesity is a separate risk factor. So that was why that was pointed out in the study. But I just, it's very interesting in the studies, it does say that if, if people sleep a long time or they spend that much time, quote unquote, sleeping, they may or may not be actually getting restorative sleep. Um, they have a higher rate of colorectal cancer. Interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, so we have about another less than a, a minute and we have covered a lot. Uh, we could probably talk for a whole nother hour, but we don't have time. But I'm wondering if you have just any uh, final closing advice for people who are interested in reducing their risk. You know, I think the final closing advice from a clinical perspective, you could know all of this intellectually. Some of it, it's just like, well, of course, I need to eat the rainbow of colors. Of course, I'm supposed to exercise. I know all these things. Um, the important thing is to find a way to make things a habit, institute that as a habit, and then let go. Uh, I always use the car as my analogy. We get in the car, we buckle up the seatbelt, we you know adjust the mirrors, we go on. We reduce our risk dramatically by taking all these small little hab habitual things that we do, and then we drive to where we're going. I kind of think of cancer prevention the same way. Exercise because you like it. Find something you enjoy. Eat well because you found ways of enjoying the food. You, can, you learned how to cook it well or spice it up. And then don't think about cancer so much as think about the enjoyment of the process of the habit you created. That's my that, biggest advice. That's great advice. Now, where can people find out more about you? Do you have a website that you'd like to share? Yeah, right now uh, I'm in Portland at Roundtable Cancer Care, where I consult all sorts of uh, different cancers and uh, people along the spectrum from prevention all the way to prevention of recurrence and during treatment time. I also have a new endeavor called um, Breast Cancer Plan. Breast Cancer Plan is all educational. This is going to be all about helping women understand where they're at and how to, uh, everything from understanding pathology reports to where to reach out for help. And I'm excited about that, that because, you know, yeah. as you know, Carolyn, I love to teach. Yes, you do. Okay. That's roundtablecancercare.com. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Kayser. This has been a great show. Next week, we're going to be talking to Dr. Deborah Jurgelin Todd, who is with the University of Utah Brain Institute. And we're going to be talking about how to protect and enhance brain function. So you won't want to miss that. So enjoy the rest of your evening and may you experience joy, laughter, and love. Have a great night, everybody. It's time to thrive. Okay.